0: They, for the first time, are funneling extensive amounts of finance directly to Indigenous people and local communities who are really at the forefront of the climate crisis. This unprecedented funding provides economic incentives to really keep the forest standing.
1: Hi, I'm Murray. And I'm Kim. And this is a Nature-Based Solutions podcast.
2: welcome back from switzerland how was your trip
1: uh very very good actually thank you very much very energetic conference i would say there's a there was a, a lot going on in a dedicated nature data area as well so very very interesting how this has become a, a sector
2: you were in your natural habitat
1: i was in my natural habitat <laughs> uh, you're wearing good. your entrepreneur socks I was wearing my entrepreneur socks, yeah, bright red. Um, meeting a combination of like, potential partners, people doing some really, really interesting stuff with regards on the ground biodiversity monitoring and assessment, which is a really critical part of carbon conservation projects alongside communities. So that was fantastic to see. And lots of investors as well.
2: Excellent. So we allowed Eden to take your place for the week, which actually is yeah. an upgrade. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not great. how very dare you so, I thought you were going to say it was a sticking plaster.
2: well he was very good and he was the perfect person actually to have on because he just published his paper and that's been causing lots of great discussion across LinkedIn and, and other places so it was really nice to have him on and you were also involved in that paper so what's your view on it?
1: I was. I mean, I've been dismayed. I think at the overarching narrative, which has been a uh, pretty much an, an attack on the carbon markets as not being perfect, and not all markets are, are perfect. The financial system has undergone crises in the past, but we haven't abandoned the financial system. We should look to build on on what we do know, which is that driving passion to forest conservation and restoration has real impact on carbon communities and biodiversity. Not all projects have had a positive impact. But the question then becomes, what do you do? And my view is very much that you take the lessons of where things haven't worked, take the lessons where things have worked and build for a better future. You shouldn't entirely abandon the the whole piece. That's what I found immensely frustrating. And to do that, to propose, really, to, to abandon the markets on the basis of research, which we don't feel was entirely rigorous... Is even more frustrating. So that that was that was really the that background to writing that paper. Ed took the the lead and actually executed it. So I believe you've talked through the uh, results in detail with him.
2: We have, and we'll probably continue to talk about the effects of that paper and others that will no doubt come over the next few months. But today's our last podcast episode of this series.
1: It is indeed. Um, I see you wiping a tear from your eye. I'm so um, hours, hours of anguish in the background will have to be uh, edited out. <laughs> we've got a great guest for our final episode. We've got Dr. Marin Polly, and I know you know her fairly well. Yeah, well, no, uh, Marin well and the, the team at Everland have known them for quite a while now. We really share a common vision about what is necessary to do for the world's tropical forests, we share a vision about the impact that these projects should have on communities and biodiversity. So it's not just a story about carbon. And it's been a real pleasure getting to know them. The team have come to to visit us up here in, in Edinburgh. Um, and we've, we've met in other places around the world. Ed met um, JT in, uh, in New York a while back. So really great team. Love what they're doing. And I think we complement each other very well.
2: Yeah, she's definitely another expert amongst many that we've spoken to this series. So very well pleased to give us an overview of the carbon markets. But first, I asked her to give us a little bit about her background.
0: So I've been working with Everland for the past couple of years now. And prior to that, I was actually at Silvera, which is a ratings agency. Um, And before that, I was in academia, so I was teaching uh, plant uh, biology at Bath Spa University in the U.K., Um, and before that I was doing uh, my Ph.D. on tree rings. Um, And now at Everland, I I lead the due diligence and research functions uh, that we have in the organization. So really digging into evaluating the RED Plus projects that we currently represent and that we might represent to ensure they meet our quality standard. And then we also do some research on the side um, internally and with academic partners as well as other stakeholders to, to really dig into the impact of RED Plus um, on a project basis and um, on the whole. So I've been in the carbon markets for a few years now.
2: And just explain to anyone who might not be familiar with Everland, what it is that Everland does.
0: Yeah, of course. So Everland represents the world's largest portfolio of high-impact Red Plus uh, forest conservation projects. So including those uh, led by Wildlife Works, Wildlife Alliance and Wildlife Conservation Society. So our team essentially works on behalf of these projects to exclusively market and sell the verified emissions reductions or VRs that the projects generate um, as a result of their success in reducing deforestation. Um, So we use the voluntary carbon markets to channel finance uh, from the corporations that we work with to these conservation projects and to local communities in highly threatened forest landscapes. And these landscapes you know, typically have, of course, critical biodiversity and carbon stocks. And uh, we work across the world, but most of our projects currently are in Cambodia, Kenya, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, so as I said, we do importantly undertake quite intensive desk-based and field-based due diligence before we represent any of these projects on the market. At the moment, we don't think that the current standards really allow buyers to differentiate you know, the range of quality in the Red Plus products that are available on the market. So we developed our own internal quality standard that we essentially assess projects against.
2: So you'll be well placed to comment on the carbon markets and how they're viewed and how successful they're being at the moment. What's your kind of overview at the moment of the carbon markets?
0: Yeah, definitely a great question, a, a complicated question, because um, the carbon markets have had ups and downs in the past few years but it's really achieved some incredible things. Um, You know, net zero might be the ultimate goal for many companies and many organizations, but we know that it'll take some time to really achieve this. But in the meantime, we have carbon markets, particularly those in the forestry sector that really provide this viable short-term solution to at least mitigate some of the effects of climate change by safeguarding and restoring some of you know, the most important carbon sinks and climate regulators in the world, these tropical forests. So I'm involved in REDD+, so I can comment um, more specifically on that. So REDD+, essentially encompasses projects that reduce deforestation and degradation while also benefiting local communities and wildlife. And uh, yeah, these projects have been operating actually for nearly two decades. But we've seen a really huge expansion in the number of Red Plus projects popping up across the globe in the last few years alone. And um, you know, these projects are not only vital, of course, to protecting diverse tropical forests, but really importantly, they, for the first time, are finaling extensive amounts of finance directly to indigenous people and local communities who are really at the forefront of the climate crisis. And this funding, this unprecedented funding, provides the economic uh, incentives to really keep the forest standing. So we have seen, you know, a growth in the supply of bread Plus credits for sure, but we did see a drop in market price over the last year. And actually this is likely a direct result of that provocative Guardian article that came out in January. You know, we know this article was underpinned by low quality science, it's been refuted by many scientists, including our research team at Eberland. And of course, the consortium of scientists led by Professor Ed Mitchard of Space Intelligence. So we do think, you know, although there has been a downturn, we think this negative reputation spread on this article really will be temporary. It might have dampened the market in 2023, um, but we really do see the market starting to pick up steam. And we think this is, you know, for a few reasons. First of all, and very importantly, new methodologies are being developed by Vera and others, and these will help Red Plus scale rapidly through jurisdictional programs. There's been a lot of, you know, improvement in research and development to make sure that we have the technology available to really back these methodologies. So of course this includes mapping advancements for baselining and monitoring. And I'd say more generally, it's become really clear through many different reports and lots of research that climate change will not be mitigated without saving forests. So the demand for these credits really does remain high. I think a lot of market actors are just kind of waiting for the new methodologies to come out, and then they will be more than happy to continue to funnel finances into these projects. So very optimistic about the future.
2: That's really great to hear. And being a biologist, I'm sure you are very pro the the red plus idea in that it's not just about saving the trees. It's about all those co-benefits that you mentioned, the biodiversity and the local people who rely on the forests,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, saving biodiversity alongside the forest is extremely, extremely important. And you know it's it's a fact that we're in a biodiversity crisis. Species are disappearing faster than recorded in human history. You know, hundreds have already gone extinct in the last few centuries alone, and more than a million species are under threat of extinction. And this is all driven by human activities. And tropical forests, they're home to some of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world. But many of these species within these forests are really at significant risk through many different anthropogenic impacts, including habitat loss habitat fragmentation pollution poaching and even climate related risks so if we can protect these tropical biodiverse forests through red plus or you know similar mechanisms at scale so we can actually protect large areas of forests then we really do have a chance at safeguarding these threatened endemic and often culturally significant species but i would say it's important to go beyond just protecting the forest, right? For Red Plus projects to be really successful at saving fauna, they need to have a built-in set of activities that really target the preservation of life on land. And, you know, this is typically done through a ranger or other security force. You often have community outreach activities for uh, learning about biodiversity, learning about why to protect it and also coming up with strategies of reducing human wildlife conflict. We also have seen um, many anti-poaching campaigns more widely. And um, there's many different projects that are really doing well with this. I'd say one that really comes to mind is the Southern Cardamom Red Plus Project in Cambodia. It's been very successful in safeguarding the biodiversity in the Cardamom Mountains, which is a biodiversity hotspot. And essentially they do this most importantly, through an intensive boots on the ground ranger program. And this ranger program is backed by the Cambodian government police force. So they regularly catch poachers, confiscate poaching equipment and save injured wildlife in collaboration with these wildlife rapid rescue teams they have on the ground. And this project also runs the Phnom Tamal Wildlife Rescue Center right nearby. And this rescue center rehabilitates these saved wildlife and ultimately releases them back into the wild within this Southern Cardamom Red Plus project border. So then they're once again protected by these rangers. And since this project started in 2015, uh, rangers have confiscated over 175,000 poaching snares and rescued more than 3,000 live animals. Wow. And this is at the same time, yeah, that they're seizing equipment related to deforestation. So like logs and chainsaws. It's really an incredible program. And it's it's been so successful, actually, that the project area has been chosen by the government as the space for reintroducing tigers who have been extinct yeah, from Cambodia for o- over a decade. Wow. So it's really, really a neat program that just shows that when you have these targeted activities, you can really safeguard the biodiversity in, in the area. So yeah, Red plus it can offer a very real solution to protecting threatened species and importantly it provides this sustainable funding that's not typically available at the scale needed through philanthropic funding sources alone. The buyers we work with, they've always been interested in the biodiversity element for sure of Red plus projects. but we definitely see a market shift. Towards safeguarding biodiversity, particularly since COP 15 in
2: Montreal. It's a great story to tell, isn't it? Because that's what everyone wants to hear that their investment is doing, right? It's 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 multifunctional and it's working and it's leading to all sorts of great, great consequences for the region and the people and the animals.
0: Yes, absolutely. You're not just buying a ton of carbon when it comes to Red Plus projects. You're you're buying an entire theory of change within the yeah. landscape and Yeah, importantly, a lot of this funding is, of course, going to the communities because deforestation, it's an economic problem and you need to have the incentives for the communities, which can be, you know, some of the agents of deforestation. You need to give them the incentive to keep the forest standing. Um, So this is providing basic needs for the communities, providing economic alternatives, different job opportunities so they can actually profit by conserving the forest. So it's a, yeah, a really interesting theory of change that can be the basis of really high quality Red Plus projects.
2: It's totally fascinating. And you touched on it earlier, just the technology that's required as, as part of these quite complex projects. And I know that digital MRV is, is a big part of what Everland does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, digital MRV measurement reporting verification is really vital to the carbon market, especially for Red Plus projects where the development of an accurate deforestation baseline and the assessment of the project against that baseline is what produces the value for the market. So what you really need is high quality, high resolution, locally calibrated land cover data. It needs to be used to assess projects through time. And without this, you know, we don't have the data to actually prove that forest conservation activities are reducing greenhouse gas emissions in reality. And of course, this is you know combined with in-situ verification um, as a ground truthing mechanism in the field. But yeah, it's really important to also know the uncertainties of this MRV data because no data is perfect. So we need to know these uncertainties to make sure the credits are being issued for red plus projects within what we would call a zone of reasonable certainty. So the credits can also be used for offsetting purposes, even if the data, is imperfect. And I think really importantly, the standard in high quality data and regular reporting of uncertainties needs to be applied to other organizations or researchers who are investigating REDD+, or other forest-based projects, including ratings agencies. You know, ratings agencies were built on using global land cover data sets that aren't locally calibrated and aren't really fit for purpose, particularly without reporting these uncertainties. The market is moving in the direction of higher quality data as technology is progressing, so it's really exciting. You know, we're seeing jurisdictional baselines and the MRV processes being established centrally using digital MRV experts such as Space Intelligence. So it's exactly where I think uh, the market needs to go if we're going to grow.
2: Fantastic! Yes, I was about to ask you to get your crystal ball out, Marin. <laughs> And tell me what you think 2024 and beyond might hold for the carbon markets and for yourselves in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the future of the carbon markets, particularly with the expansion of Red Plus through jurisdictional programs that are set to roll out in 2024. And if these jurisdictional programs have the strong technological basis that we've been promised, then the market is really poised to grow rapidly with projects coming online quickly underpinned by this level of certainty that buyers are after. And I think the release of new standards, including the Equitable Earth Standard in 2024 will really rock the market. Um, we have this alternative standard that's community-centered, data-intensive, and it's an alternative to VERA for Red Plus projects. So at Everline, we've been one of the founding members of this standard. So that's really what we're pushing forward within the next year, but it will ultimately be a standard that is focused in the South that is completely indigenous and community led. So that's very, very exciting. Also for Everline, we've had some changes in leadership. So we have yeah, Pamela Brazier is now leading the organization as president alongside Josh Tostison, our CEO. We also have Gerald Perlman, the founder, who is moving into the position of executive chairman. And Josh McCarran will be stepping up as the global head of business development. So some very exciting changes. And uh, we're also hiring staff in countries who will have continuous access to the projects that we represent, including staff in Colombia, Cambodia and uh, the DRC or Kenya. Through our current research, we're also developing a new way of crediting through uncertainty, estimations and adjustments. And that's going to be revealed in early uh, 2024. And uh, we're onboarding lots of new projects, including um, indigenous-led projects in, in South America. To put that a little bit into perspective, we're at the moment representing five bread Plus projects that are currently safeguarding 1.2 million hectares of forests. And they've actually already reduced greenhouse gas emissions by more than 100 million tons of CO2 equivalent. And we're set to double these figures by the end of 2024 through the establishment of new projects by our partners, including Wildlife Works, Wildlife Conservation Society, and Wildlife Alliance. So yeah, we, we envision the market and uh, Everland to do incredible things in 2024 to protect forests.
1: That's really, really exciting to hear. I feel that there was a very, very strong, let's call it an anti-nature agenda in the certain newspaper last year. Let's have 2024 as very much the, the the fight back and drive sustainable finance into forests, see increasing conservation, restoration, increasing amounts of cash for communities and biodiversity conservation. That's what we need to do.
2: Yeah. And if anyone's coming into this podcast on the last episode of the series and you're interested in learning about carbon markets, what we've tried to do with the Nature-Based Solutions podcast is reflect all the various sides of the carbon market, speak to as many experts as we could get hold of, and hopefully we've given a balanced view and some real expert opinion on what's going on and what's next. What what interviews stick in your head, Murray?
1: Oh, That's a good one i really enjoyed my conversation with gordon bennett all of our conversations have been fantastic but the reason i enjoyed that one in particular was because he's got a very very different role and a very very different perspective people like marin a phd a brain box and a domain expert in an organization we we work with gordon's perspective is very very different in a very different organization and he's thinking about things from a very, very pure market perspective, thinking about incentives, thinking about instruments that you can use to achieve the desired goals. So I really enjoyed that. I think we really got into some great detail and covered a lot of new ground in that particular interview. What about yourself? Any major reflections?
2: Well, I thought they were all fascinating. I just love learning so much from all these experts. I really enjoyed speaking to lots of the team from space intelligence actually for this this series some great stories from carol and ed right at the start animal encounters that's always fun to talk about meeting snakes while you're swimming and gorillas while you're washing your feet and bees while you're trying to hike but also speaking in depth with paula and the team about how you actually measure forests and understanding some of the science behind it because some of that can be quite difficult for the average non-scientist to wrap their head around. So I really like that as well.
1: Brilliant. Well, it has been a, a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun, but it has been a great learning experience. I do hope that anybody who's listening to this has gained something from it and will work with us. It's not a one person. It's not a one organisation. It's not even one community challenge. These are multiple strands here. It's a very, very complicated set of challenges. So... Hopefully, it will bring people together, stimulate new discussions and ideas, and uh, we'll be able to build on that for a much better 2024.
2: It's exciting. What big things do you see in the pipeline for space intelligence next year?
1: Well, we've built up a fantastic team. They've built up a fantastic set of clients. So working, working with the world's biggest companies as they start to devote really very significant sums of cash to nature-based solutions alongside rapid decarbonisation. And that's what needs to happen i mean that was the philosophy behind the paper which uh, ed led on and various other communications which we put out is that companies need to decarbonize but you can't do that overnight and so you're left with residual emissions and we are very much of the opinion that those residual emissions should be offset using very high quality credits so 2024 i think is going to be a very very exciting year 2023 has seen a lot of disturbance, obviously, as a result of the criticisms of forest carbon projects. I foresee a lot of that stabilizing. We have our major platform development, Q3 of next year. That should be be ready to go live. And that's going to, again, bring more transparency and integrity into the market. So some really, really key commercial and technological waypoints that we'll see in 2024 all set in a much brighter future for forests. As you know I'm an eternal optimist so that's the way I see it. Good. And and what about for you Kim?
2: Yeah I'm looking forward to following the story and seeing how it all develops. I feel like I have enough knowledge to be dangerous now Murray.
1: (laughs) You're a dangerous (laughs) character.
2: (laughs) But it's been a pleasure making the podcast with you and best of luck for all going well
1: thank you very much and i shall see you in in the new year thanks for listening